Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin today with The Health Lead. This afternoon, the nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, said that he is concerned about what he called a disturbing surge in coronavirus infections in some states, calling it very troublesome, and that the next two weeks are critical in order to get the spread under control. The number of new coronavirus cases is on the rise in half of all states, and 13 states just yesterday saw a record number of new infections. Despite the spread, the Trump administration is, as of now, continuing its plan to end funding for testing sites a week from today. Even in hard-hit states such as Texas, Colorado, and Illinois, 13 sites across five states in total, even though Dr. Fauci once again emphasized today the importance of testing. Fauci is among the Trump administration health officials testifying right now before the House Committee on Energy and Commerce. And it has not been all bad news, we should note, as CNN's Nick Watt reports for us now. Dr. Fauci is cautiously optimistic there may be light at the end of this tunnel. If you look at how we've been hit, we've been hit badly. A checkup from Dr. Anthony Fauci. Praise for New York, where they are for now controlling COVID-19. However, in other areas of the country, we're now seeing a disturbing surge of infections. Black Americans are being hit harder. Does institutional racism play a part? The answer, Congressman, is yes. And a vaccine. I still think there is a reasonably good chance that by the very beginning of 2021, that if we're going to have a vaccine, that we will have it by then. Meantime, they say it must be masks, distancing and hand washing. The next couple of weeks are going to be critical in our ability to address those surgings that we're seeing. Case counts are now rising in half our states. As we move from total lockdown to a public health model of testing, tracking, isolating and quarantining, we have yet to see any state make that transition effectively. Here's what happened in Texas since reopening began. We knew daily case counts would go up. They've about quadrupled. Because the spread is is so rampant right now, there's never a reason for you to have to leave your home unless you do need to go out. He says even tougher actions might be needed if those numbers keep rising. Here's Florida since reopening began. Average case counts have tripled. A week ago, we had eight patients, uh, none on a ventilator. We're now at over 40 plus patients, four on ventilators. We've had to 
find a second COVID unit and are looking for a third COVID unit right now. More than 60% of all infections in the U.S. are in those under 50, according to the CDC. Increasing fears for schools in the fall and the return of sports. The world's number one tennis player, Novak Djokovic, just tested positive days after hosting an up-close and personal tournament, a decision another player called boneheaded. And Djokovic just updated his earlier apologetic statement to add, we were wrong and it was too soon. Meanwhile, Jake, bad news from California. A record high number of new cases and a record number of COVID patients in the hospital, according to the state. And this isn't the second wave, Jake. We are still in the first. That's right. Nick Watt in Los Angeles, thank you so much. Let's talk about all this with CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Uh, Sanjay, this morning Dr. Fauci told uh, the House of Representatives that he remains cautiously optimistic that some vaccines will be ready at the end of the year or at the very latest at the beginning of 2021. That theoretically would be the fastest vaccine ever mm. developed. Uh, your reaction? Yeah, I mean, by a long shot, right? I mean, typically you talk about not even years to develop vaccines, but oftentimes decades if they work at all. I mean, HIV, hepatitis C, certain uh, viruses for which we've been trying to find vaccines, which we've never been able to actually develop one. You know, I, I guess cautiously optimistic is, is the reaction. Um, the, the, the thing I'm sort of struck by, I think more from a medical journalism standpoint, is that we've seen very little data still. You know, mid-June, end of June now, very little data. We've seen some encouraging results. Some of these early vaccine trials, phase one trials, showed evidence that the vaccine actually generated antibodies. But still, Jake, um, much of these, this data is coming to us by press release. Uh, they're coming to us through non-peer-reviewed sort of articles. So I, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised by that. We want to dig our teeth into it, do some independent validation, and see what this stuff really means. I'd like to believe that the, it's progressing really well, and obviously the whole world would, would, would like to see a vaccine uh, sooner rather than later. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised, and, and I think as a medical journalist, we have to keep digging to actually see the results that people say is giving them that optimism. Absolutely. Um, CDC Director Dr. Redfield uh, said that the CDC has developed a test that checks uh, for coronavirus and both strains of the flu. That seems a significant development. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I, w one of the things you have to, to realize is that even during a normal flu season pre-COVID, um, you know, a certain percentage of the country would get tested for flu, but oftentimes uh, doctors would, would or, or nurses, healthcare people would say, look, if flu is circulating in the area and you have flu-like symptoms, it's probably flu. I mean, it's sort of a diagnosis of exclusion. I think the, the same questions are going to apply to this test as any other test. How widely available is it going to be? Are people going to be, have access to it? And is it going to be an accurate test? I think those things matter more than this idea of combining it for convenience. Also, you know, it shouldn't take the place of the flu shot. I mean, the flu shot's not perfect, but I think the flu vaccine is going to be more important this year probably than, than maybe ever before. And there's still so much about this virus we don't know. Some people think that because they've been exposed or if somebody has antibodies that that automatically means they're immune uh, or because that they're young they won't have severe symptoms take a listen to what scientist and author uh, william hasseltine told cnn this morning i call this virus the get it and then your body forgets it this is not a standard virus that you're going to get herd immunity there is no evidence 
of herd immunity for coronaviruses. It does not exist. So until there's a vaccine, we should all just operate on the assumption that we're all susceptible to the virus, right? I, I heard uh, Dr. Hasselstein make those remarks, and you know I have great respect for Dr. Hasselstein. I think he's drawing a comparison with other coronaviruses, the ones that cause a common cold, and saying you know people get common colds often, so why would this be any different? I don't know. I, I think there, there does seem to be some protection that people get after they get this particular infection, Jake. We don't know how long that protection lasts or how strong it is. But Jake, again, we're at what, end of June now. We haven't really heard about reinfection Sorry. rates in the United States. If, if, if this was a thing that didn't provide protection, then I think we would have started hearing clusters of reinfections. And we haven't heard that. There was some concern about that in South Korea. That wasn't really the case. So I think you do get some protection. But how long that protection lasts, we still need to figure out. Okay, well, half the country right now, 25 states are seeing an increase in coronavirus cases over the past week, including Florida, Texas, and Arizona. Arizona, where the president is right now. Dr. Fauci said the next couple of weeks are going to be critical in the ability to address the surges. Now, obviously, Florida, Texas, Arizona were among states that reopened uh, fairly early in, in early May or even the end of April. Where were we on May 12th when Fauci last, last testified mm. compared to where we are today? Well, I, I want to show you that. And, and let me remind you as, you, as you look at these maps, there was criteria, Jake. You remember, you and I talked about that at the time the criteria were released that needed to be met before states could open. These were criteria that came from the White House, from the Coronavirus Task Force itself in conjunction with the CDC. I can tell you, as we go back and look, I don't know that any of the states, or 48 states that essentially were reopened at the time of the last hearings on May 12th, I don't know that any of them had actually met these criteria. Just to keep that in mind, there were criteria by which these states should open. So now go look at May 12th and, and look at this past week. It's changed a lot. There were some 80,000 people who had died uh, May, by May 12th, and now it's you know 40,000 more people died over the last 40 days. There were about a, a million, 1.3 million people have been infected. About a million more people have become infected over the last 40 days. So Dr. Fauci's right, of course, that you know, the next few weeks are gonna be critical, but you know, we started off way behind. We started off way behind every step of the way with testing, with, with we opened too early, not meeting the own criteria. And you can see you know, the stark difference in these maps from one hearing to the next. And meanwhile, California, which was very aggressive, very early, continues to struggle. In fact, the state of California recorded more than 5,000 cases, a record high, and hospitalizations have grown 16% over the last two weeks. This is a state that has a governor who's taken it seriously. San Francisco shut down pretty early. What's going on in California? I, I think there's two things that I'm, I'm sort of realizing, and this is in part talking to sources in these various states. One is that, you know, flatten the curve became the sole metric of success. Let's just flatten the curve uh, but, and, and, and base, basically decide to open again if the curve is flattened. That wasn't really supposed to be the metric of success. That was just to, to keep hospitals from getting overrun. That's what flattening the curve is all about. Two is that, again, going back to the gating criteria, the reason you wanted the numbers to be so low is that you could then phase into the next thing. After you started to open up, you needed to have the testing in place. If you had low enough numbers, you could contact trace effectively. Because the numbers are so high, it's very hard to contact trace all those people that are newly infected every day. So the basic public health measures that needed to go in place 
after you started to open things up, even if you were doing a good job before that, weren't in place, as, as Dr. Richard Besser just said in Nick's piece. So we, we didn't fit, fit the criteria, and we didn't put the second piece of the puzzle into place. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much, as always. And be sure to join Sanjay and Anderson Cooper for a new CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears, that's live Thursday night, 8 p.m. Eastern. As always, must-see TV. Call it the testing two-step. The White House says one thing, the president says the opposite. And up next, the country's top medical experts explain what's really happening, plus a summer vacation alert. The countries that are now considering blocking the American people from visiting because of the surge in infections in the United States. That's ahead. At that rally, when you said you asked your people to slow down testing, were you just kidding, or do you have a plan to slow down testing? I don't kid. Okay, that's President Trump today, plainly admitting what his team has been trying to deny for days, that he was serious when he said he had asked his team to slow down coronavirus testing because more cases made the country look bad, which is, no matter how you slice it, a nonsensical way to address this crisis. A cancer patient can refuse to have a biopsy. That doesn't mean he doesn't have cancer. But the president is clearly focused on the optics of all this and how those optics could affect his reelection campaign, which might explain why he is in Arizona right now, playing up an issue he knows appeals to his base, the border wall, as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports. President Trump landed in Phoenix today with hopes of reviving his re-election bid after a low turnout in Tulsa on Saturday. And this time he'll survey one of his biggest promises in 2016. We will build a great wall along the southern border. The trip was billed as a celebration of 200 miles of new wall, though only roughly three miles are where no barrier existed before. And the rest is a new system that replaced outdated structures that were already there. It's just about unclimbable. As coronavirus cases in Arizona spike, Trump is scheduled to host a mask-optional rally for college students at a megachurch, as several of his campaign staffers are still quarantining after testing positive. Before leaving Washington, Trump contradicted what his own officials have said for days, that he was just kidding when he said he told staff to slow down coronavirus testing. It was a comment that he made in jest. You know, it was tongue-in-cheek. Come on now. Trump said today it wasn't. I don't kid. By having more cases, it sounds bad. But actually what it is is we're finding people. Adding to the confusion, as Trump was contradicting his own staff, his top health experts were contradicting him while testifying on Capitol Hill. But to my knowledge, none of us have ever been told to slow down on testing. That just is a fact. In fact, we will be doing more testing. Addressing reporters today, Trump also called for lengthy jail sentences for those who unsuccessfully tried to topple Andrew Jackson's statue in Lafayette Park in front of the White House last night, using straps and chains until police intervened with chemical agents and batons and pushed them out of the park. Trump said he'll sign an executive order enforcing a law already enacted to preserve monuments like Jackson's. We are looking at long-term jail sentences for these vandals and these hoodlums and these anarchists and agitators 
and call them whatever you want. Some people don't like that language, but that's what they are. The president said no monuments will be removed on his watch, but Jackson's may be more personal. He has long admired the seventh president who signed the Indian Removal Act and forced the march now known as the Trail of Tears, and Trump has his portrait hanging in the Oval. Trump has compared their elections and even paid tribute to Jackson at his Nashville plantation once. Andrew Jackson was a military hero and genius and a beloved president, but he was also a flawed and imperfect man, a product of his time. Now, Jake, after the president said numerous people were arrested last night, we reached out to the Metropolitan Police Department. They said two people were arrested for assault on an officer. And I should note that a law enforcement source is telling my colleague Ali Malloy that remember that tall black fence that they had put up around Lafayette Park after they initially cleared those protesters out earlier this month? We are now told that is expected to go back up in the coming days. All right, Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. The renewed push legally or by mob to take down statues and monuments of historical figures with problematic, if not obscene histories comes after multiple high-profile cases of black men billing, being killed by white police officers. The funeral for one of those men, Rayshard Brooks, is just wrapping up in Atlanta right now. Brooks died nearly two weeks ago after an officer shot him twice in the back in a Wendy's parking lot. CNN's Nick Valencia is live outside Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. And Nick, the service today was emotional and moving, but it was also a call to action from Rayshard Brooks's family. There was a message of love here today, Jake. In fact, the niece of Rayshard Brooks uh, spoke clearly about that, calling on the community to put love first, especially during this moment in America. And the man who eulogized Rayshard Brooks, the, the pastor here at Ebenezer Baptist Church, Ralph Warnock, calling this moment, this day, a moral inflection point in the country. I asked him how he would go about eulogizing Rayshard Brooks, a man who was not a member of this church, a man who he never met. He said Brooks represented a larger part of the conversation going on in this country, the narrative currently going on in this country. He said he represents not only the ideals, but its shortcomings here in this country. And it's clear that people were drawn to today's services. I spoke to one family who brought their six-month-old grandson. I asked them what today meant to them. It's actually scary. It's scary and it's hard explaining to your children what's really going on. I'm hoping that racism police brutality, and just basic human discrimination cease. And just very quickly here, Jake, the, uh, one of the officers involved in the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks, uh, Devin Brosnan, who has been released on bond, gave an interview to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He called Brooks' death a tragedy, but said personally he wouldn't do anything different that day. He went on to say that he feels as though his side of the story was not told, which is why he gave this interview. And he also pushed back on the assertion that he's now a state's witness, saying that he is cooperating uh, and will continue to cooperate. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia in Atlanta, thank you so much. Coming up next, the new dramatic push to keep Disney's gates closed. Stay with us. The money lead today, keep Disney closed. That's the message from some Disney employees in Florida who started a petition urging Walt Disney World to delay its scheduled July 11th reopening. Nearly 6,000 people have signed on to that petition. Workers say the park 
is just not safe given the surge in coronavirus cases in Florida, especially in nearby Orange County, where infections have jumped more than 400 in just one day. I want to discuss this with CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley. Julia, thanks for uh, joining us. This petition from workers at Walt Disney World reads in part, quote, it is not fair to the people who work there to risk their lives, especially if they are at risk or have family members who are at risk. People are more important than making a profit, unquote. Here you have employees of Walt Disney World saying out loud exactly what a lot of families fear, that it's simply too early to work at or even to visit an outdoor theme park. Absolutely, especially if you're operating in a state that see cases spike like Florida. Look, this is a small chunk of the resort's 77,000 plus employees. But what they're saying in this petition is as workers, we're responsible for the safety of each other and our guests. That struck me because look at Disney's website about what they have to say about potential guests coming to the resort. They say by visiting Walt Disney World Resort, you voluntarily assume all risks related to exposure to COVID-19. Look at that. There's no sugar coating there to help the medicine go down there. Workers are saying for everybody involved here, the risks are too high. Disney, I would argue, has a tough decision to make on this date. People and reputation, if they have to open and then close again, comes before profits, Jake. All right, Julia Chatterley with our money lead. Thank you so much. There are protests for policing reform underway right now as Senate Democrats are preparing to stop a Republican plan for policing reform. But why? I'll ask the number two Democrat in the Senate next. In our politics lead today, Senate Democrats are poised to block a policing reform bill being introduced by Senate Republicans. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer calling the Republican proposal, quote, not salvageable because it does not go far enough in eliminating the use of neck restraints, no-knock warrants, and immunity protections for police. A groundswell of bipartisan support for policing reform as a general concept emerged in the weeks after George Floyd's killing by a white Minneapolis cop. Joining me now from Capitol Hill is Senate Minority Rep. Dick Durbin, Democrat of Illinois. Um, Senator Durbin, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Uh, Republican Senator John Cornyn said that Democrats are, quote, completely insane to block the debate. He suggested there may not be a path forward. I guess the basic question I have is why not just allow a vote to proceed with debate and have amendments and then try to make the best legislation possible so that it can go on to work, be worked on in a conference committee with members of the House which Speaker Pelosi, frankly, has suggested is what she wants. Jake, let me tell you, I've been in the Senate a few years and I've worked on some major legislation, immigration reform, for example, the most important criminal justice reform bill of the last decade. In each and every instance, we started off with a bipartisan group that came together and said, this is what we're going to stand for together. We're going to resist any debilitating amendments. We'll decide whether an amendment is good or not good. We'll go forward if we have to. Uh, Do it alone if we have to. We do that and do it regularly, and it's the way you succeed in the United States Senate. But Mitch McConnell knows that. And so what he's told us, tomorrow, you get an up or down vote, Democrats, take it or leave it. You're either for a change or against it, and we'll give you one vote, and we're, we're done. That's not the way to approach it. It's the reason why every major civil rights group and police reform group in the United States opposes the Republican proposal and joins us in saying we're not going to vote on a motion to proceed until we come together on a bipartisan basis and really chart a course that has a chance of success. 
But McConnell is offering an opportunity to have amendments from Democrats and Republicans, right? Let me tell you how that world works. It's called a tree. For goodness sakes, what's a tree got to do with the debate? Well, it's a tree of amendments, and McConnell fills the tree of amendments, and the next thing you know, there are no opportunities for anybody else's amendment. Plus, we live in a 53-47 Senate. We don't have a majority, a bare majority, and couldn't come up with 60 unless a lot of Republicans joined us. He knows that. He's in charge of the floor. He decides what comes to the floor. He stops things on the floor. So we want to make sure that if we're going to sit down and do this, we do it in good faith on a bipartisan basis. The bill from Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina makes lynching a federal crime, it's a democratic measure, promotes de-escalation training for police, it will study racial bias in policing, it pushes police to restrict neck restraints, it doesn't ban them the way you want to, but it it pushes to uh, restrict them, it increases the use of police body cameras, it tracks the use of no-knock warrants, and it creates a database that tracks enhanced use of force. Are you really suggesting that all that becoming law is worse than nothing becoming law? Well, let me tell you, the way you have just described some of those things, I hardly recognize them. Body cameras, for example, we say that we mandate body cameras and vehicle cameras. They say, we're going to provide you some money, police departments, if you'd like to go ahead and use them. And can you send us assurances that you think it's a good idea? That's a heck of a lot different than saying they're mandated or you don't qualify for federal funds. When it comes to the chokehold that killed some of the victims that we've seen recently, you look at the Republican language, it is a lot weaker than the Democratic language. And it really calls on the Attorney General, how would you like to turn to him at this moment in history, calls on the Attorney General to define what's excessive use of force. You can understand that there are some fundamental differences, and that's the reason why these police reform groups are on our side of the debate and not on the side of the Republicans. You, you noted earlier that you're in a Senate that is controlled by Republicans. In addition, the President of the United States is a Republican. Is it not just as a matter of fact, of real politic, that the best chance there is of getting something signed by the president that would be an improvement on what we have now is to, is to allow a debate, improve the bill as much as possible, it passes, maybe Democrats don't vote for it, but it passes, then the House Democrats and Senate Republicans get together, work on a conference bill and get something to the president's desk. Are you really saying that nothing happening, nothing is better than that. No, I believe something that's bipartisan, that is backed by the groups that truly want real change and real reform, something that can make a difference. Let's get to the bottom line here. The bottom line is after eight minutes and 46 seconds, America was changed. We saw what happened to George Floyd. America saw it, the world saw it, and we said we're gonna change this in America. And the young people went out in the street in numbers I've never seen before and said to me, uh, Mr. Senator, we don't wanna live in the shadow of racism for the rest of our lives, change it and make real changes that make a difference. And that's what we're determined to do as Democrats. And, and some uh, effort that doesn't achieve that, I'm not gonna stand here and endorse and say, well, it's better than nothing. This is an historic moment, let's use it and make America a better country. What, everything that has happened in the, country, in the country since George Floyd died, and I agree with you, there, there's obviously more momentum for changes. The country's in the middle of, of a, a reckoning with, with racism. But it didn't change the makeup of the Senate. It's still 53-47. And I I guess I'm wondering, like, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Jake, let me jump in here. Let me tell you, the polling shows the Republicans feel as intensely about this as Democrats. 
This isn't a Democrat-Republican breakdown. People across this country want real change. Now, there may be a variation, a slight variation, but overwhelmingly, your people are calling for change that makes a difference. And for goodness sake, shouldn't we do it? You have to go back to the 1960s to see the Kerner Commission, a report on police violence. And you think to yourself, well, wait a minute, that was 60 years ago. We're still talking about it? Let's not wait another 60 years and hope for the best. Let's seize this moment when both political parties should be working together because Republicans and Democrats and independents across America feel the same way that real change is needed. Is every Democrat in your caucus united behind this strategy? I'm not sure every one of them is, but overwhelmingly uh, they believe as we do, that we ought to stick with the civil rights groups, we ought to stick with the groups that truly want real police reform and vote down the motion to proceed. Mitch McConnell knows that as soon as that is defeated, if it is defeated, we can move immediately to a bipartisan consideration. That's what our leader Chuck Schumer and, and uh, Cory Booker and Kamala Harris have asked for. These are th the way that you do things in the Senate if you really want meaningful change to happen. Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois, thank you so much for your time, sir. We always appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. As coronavirus cases surge in the U.S., a top medical expert says he would rather vacation in Rome than in Phoenix, Arizona this summer. I'll talk to him about what Italy and other countries got right that we are not in the United States. That's next. Breaking news on our health lead today, the European Union is considering blocking American visitors due to the recent uptick in cases in the U.S., according to two EU diplomats. Europe has seen a steady decrease in cases as countries there continue to reopen. Italy today recording its lowest number of new coronavirus cases since March. It was March when Italian hospitals began to overflow. Some doctors having to decide who would live and who would die because of a shortage of ventilators. And the entire country was on lockdown at that point. They have since, Italy, turned a corner, at least for now. And yet here in the United States, at least 10 states have seen their highest average number of cases over the last week. So what are other countries doing right that the United States is not currently? Joining me now to discuss is director of Harvard's Global Health Institute, Dr. Ashish Jha. Dr. Jha, you were quoted in Politico saying you would rather spend the summer in Rome with your family than in Phoenix, given the current state of this pandemic. Explain why. Yeah, so Jake, thanks for having me on. You know, we actually had been earlier before the pandemic thinking about heading to the Southwest for part of our summer vacation. But of course, everything is now in, in disarray. And as I was speaking to that journalist and I was thinking about where America is versus where Italy is, you know, Italy was the cautionary tale, the country to avoid because they did such a bad job of initially responding. And yet they've really brought their virus levels way, way down, whereas we in the United States largely have not. And obviously places like Arizona are in particular trouble. So just from a safety and health point of view, it's much safer to be in Rome right now than it is to be in Phoenix. Well, what did they do in Italy that we are not doing in Arizona or Texas or California? Well, uh, it, very simply, they took the virus seriously. Again, they initially didn't, but then once they got serious, they locked down and then they stayed locked down for an extended period of time until the case numbers dropped substantially. Whereas what we did was we did lock down for a little while. And then in a lot of states, while the case numbers were still quite high and not dropping, we opened up again. And we just didn't let the data drive our decision making. I think we kind of lost energy. Uh, and got tired of being locked down, which I understand. 
but now we're paying the price for that. And what's your reaction to the news that the EU, the European Union, is now considering blocking American visitors because of the surge in cases here? Is that a justified move by the EU? Well, we are the hot spot of the world right now, along with Brazil and Russia. We're the three countries uh, that are really generating the most number of new infections and cases. Uh, obviously, not two other countries that I want our country to be lumped in with. Uh, but we're doing a pretty abysmal job as a nation. And so uh, I, you know, I understand why the EU is doing it. Obviously, I wish they wouldn't. wouldn't but if they're trying to prevent infections coming into their countries, uh, America is going to be one of the top places that other countries are going to look to block uh, in order to keep themselves safe. If President Trump tomorrow said, OK, Doc, you're in charge, unlimited funding, you can do whatever you want, help us get control of this, what would you do? Yeah, you know, this is not rocket science. Like the first thing I do, and again, we're going to need the help of governors, but I think most governors would be enthusiastic about trying to be helpful, is I think we need uh, mandated mask rules and laws about people when they're outside, when they're in indoor uh, buildings, uh, public spaces, they need to be wearing masks. Uh, I would uh, make sure that we have a certain amount of social distancing, meaning no nightclubs, no packed bars, no packed restaurants, certainly not in places where there's any level of, of, of a viral outbreak going on. And then last, I would substantially ramp up testing and tracing. Uh, these are the three things that Germany has used, that other countries have used, and they're open. They're much more open than us, and they're not seeing the kind of outbreaks that we're having. Uh, this is the same list we've been saying for weeks and months. Um, we just don't seem to have the political will or interest to try to actually implement it. Well, well, that's just my question. I guess that's my next question is, why not? I mean, there was, there was a move. Obviously, uh, it, from you, if you listen to Dr. Fauci and you, you listen to Dr. Burks, they're in favor of doing what you're talking about. Um, but President yeah. Trump, it seems, has just decided that this is over and he just wants to go back to normal and that we could just act as if, everything's fine and maybe it will just all go away. Right, so what we know is that it will not all go away. And I understand the fatigue and I understand a lot of people wanting to put it behind us. Um, we don't unfortunately get to decide when we put the pandemic behind us. The pandemic decides when it's over. And we've got to deal with the reality at hand. Like this is about being an adult. Like you don't just get to ignore something in front of you because you don't like it anymore or you're tired of it. And I don't completely understand why our federal government feels to me like it is giving up on the pandemic and letting states and cities all figure it out on their own, which is going to be very hard uh, for us to be able to fight a pandemic this way. And, and just lastly, I mean, I just find it amazing that the United States has a population of about four or five percent of the world's population is in the United States. But we have roughly a quarter, 25 percent of the world's coronavirus deaths, if you go by official figures and obviously who knows what you can trust coming from China. But, but, I mean, that just seems to me like just numerically, empirically, a huge failure by our leaders. Yeah, I think there is pretty broad consensus in the public health community, not just here, but around the world, uh, that America is on track to have the worst performance of any high-income country. Uh, we might look good by comparison to places like Brazil and, and Russia, 
but compared to the countries we generally like to compare ourselves to, the uh, to France, Germany, Spain, the, the Scandinavian countries, other European nations, Japan, uh, other East Asian countries, we're going to end up looking probably at the bottom of that list. We can still turn this around, right? Like we still have all the capability to turn this around, but we're going to have to decide as a country we want to. And if we do, we can get our economy back and we can save lives. It reminds me of a, of a message I got on Facebook from a viewer uh, abroad saying, tell people in Hollywood to stop making movies where the United States saves the rest of the world. Dr. Ashish Jha, thank you so much for your time and your candor today. We appreciate it. President Trump is about Thanks. to hold a campaign event in Phoenix where coronavirus cases are skyrocketing, sadly. We're on the ground there next. Stay with us. President Trump is in Arizona right now, where any moment he will address thousands of students at the Dream City Church. It doesn't look like there's much social distancing going on there. Arizona is a key battleground state with 11 electoral votes up for grabs. It's also a major coronavirus hotspot, regrettably. Today, state health officials announced a record 3,591 new cases, as well as 42 deaths in the last day. CNN's Ryan Nobles is in Phoenix at the church. Ryan, what do we know about this address and, and the types of precautions being taken, if any? Well, this address, uh, Jake, is going to be President Trump specifically reaching out to young voters. This is a group of students for Trump, and he's going to try and focus his message to that particular group of people and get them enthusiastic behind his campaign. But in terms of the planning to prevent coronavirus precautions and the spread of the disease, there isn't much of any. Uh, almost no one in this uh, auditorium, aside from those of us on the press riser, are wearing masks. There were no temperature checks on their way in. Almost little to no social distancing taking place. And as you mentioned, this is at a time where those coronavirus numbers are on the rise here in Phoenix. And we should also keep in mind that there is an ordinance that says if you're inside and within six feet of someone else, you should have a mask on. And everyone in this room is basically ignoring that ordinance. Jake. And Ryan, President Trump won Arizona in 2016 by about three and a half percent. It's no coincidence that he's there four and a half months before the election, uh, right? No, n not at all, Jake. This is a state that Republicans really feel they have to win. It's also an example of how President Trump is forced to play defense to try and hold on to these seats that he won back in 2016, as opposed to playing offense and trying to win seats that Hillary Clinton won. They know this is important. Polls for him at this point have been less than encouraging. It's one of the reasons he's here today, and it's one of the reasons he's going to spend a lot of time here as we get ahead to the general election. All right, President Trump filling another packed auditorium with people not adhering to the CDC guidelines. Uh, Ryan Nibbles, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And breaking news this afternoon in our politics lead, a deputy to former special counsel Robert Mueller now says that Roger Stone got special treatment because he was friends with the president. Aaron Zelinsky says the, quote, highest levels of the Justice Department politicized the sentencing of a longtime Trump ally, Mr. Stone. This, according to Zelinsky's prepared congressional testimony, which was just released this afternoon, Stone was sentenced to more than three years in prison for lying to Congress and threatening a witness. Prosecutors had wanted to sentence him seven to nine years in prison, but Attorney General Barr overrode that after the president tweeted that the original recommendation was, quote, very unfair. We're going to go dig into this and much more in our upcoming CNN special report called Trump and the Law After Impeachment. That documentary airs 10 p.m. Eastern on Sunday, only on CNN. 
Thanks for watching us today. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.